This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to medial ulnar collateral ligament injury and tibial plafond fractures, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with medial ulnar collateral ligament injury. And the first question reads, Medial ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction, also known as Tommy John surgery, is common in baseball pitchers. When pitching a baseball, which phase of throwing creates forces approaching the tensile limit of the medial ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow? And the choices are 1. Early cocking, 2. Late cocking slash early acceleration, 3. Ball release, 4. Follow through, and 5. Deceleration. So the late cocking and early acceleration phases are often combined when discussing medial stress on the elbow of the overhand thrower. This is when the greatest valgus moment across the medial elbow occurs and the forces reach the tensile limits of the medial ulnar collateral ligament. Flasig et al. were among the first to elucidate the elbow and shoulder kinetics in healthy adult pitchers using high-speed motion capture analysis. Inability to generate sufficient elbow varus torque may result in medial tension, lateral compression, and posterior medial impingement injury. According to Lynch et al., the late cocking phase of the overhand throw places a marked valgus moment across the medial elbow. This repetitive force reaches the tensile limits of the medial collateral ligament, subjecting it to microtraumatic injury and attenuation. The anterior bundle of the medial collateral ligament has been identified as the primary restraint to valgus load and is the focus of reconstruction. But the correct answer to this question is 2. Late cocking slash early acceleration is the phase of throwing that creates forces approaching the tensile limit of the medial ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow. Moving on to the next question. A professional pitcher reports pain localized to the medial aspect of his throwing elbow. History reveals that he was pitching in a playoff game and heard and felt a pop in his elbow. MRI reveals a complete ulnar-sided avulsion of the medial collateral ligament. Examination reveals valgus instability and ulnar nerve involvement. What recommendations should be made based on the patient's desire to return to sport? And the choices are 1. Surgical reconstruction. 2. Rest followed by physical therapy. 3. Splinting in 15 degrees of flexion. 4. Primary repair. And 5. Arthroscopic debridement followed by bracing and full extension for 4 weeks. So injuries to the MCL usually result from repetitive high valgus stress on the medial aspect of the elbow joint due to overhand throwing or racket sports. Excessive stresses during the late cocking and acceleration phase of throwing can injure the anterior band of the MCL. Clinically, the injuries may present as chronic or acute, and a pop may be noted in the latter. Associated ulnar nerve involvement is common. Valgus instability is present in about 25% of patients. Patients typically are athletes who participate in throwing and have localized medial elbow pain and tenderness along the course of a ligament that extends from the medial epicondyle of the distal humerus to the sublime tubercle of the ulna. Surgical reconstruction is the procedure of choice in an athlete desiring a return to a high level of throwing. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Surgical reconstruction. Moving on to the next question. What structure provides the most static stability for valgus restraint in the elbow? And the choices are 1. Posterior band of the ulnar collateral ligament, 2. Anterior band of the ulnar collateral ligament, 3. Transverse band of the ulnar collateral ligament, 4. The annular ligament, and 5. The flexor pronator mass. So the anterior band of the ulnar collateral ligament provides the greatest restraint to valgus stress in the elbow, making 2 the correct answer to this question. 
the posterior band is taut in flexion and resists stress between 60 degrees and full flexion. The annular ligament stabilizes the radial head. The flexor pronator mass are important dynamic stabilizers of the medial elbow. Moving on to the next question. A 20-year-old minor league baseball pitcher is diagnosed with a symptomatic torn ulnar collateral ligament in his pitching elbow. Non-surgical management consisting of rest and physical therapy aimed at elbow strengthening has failed to provide relief. He has concomitant cubital tunnel symptoms that worsen while throwing. What is his best surgical option? And the choices are 1. UCL repair and nighttime elbow extension splinting. 2. UCL repair with ulnar nerve decompression in situ. 3. Allograft UCL reconstruction with interference screws. 4. Autograft UCL reconstruction with ulnar nerve transposition and 5. Autograft UCL reconstruction using a docking technique. So high-level pitchers with symptomatic UCL tears require reconstruction, with autograft being the best studied graft selection. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Autograft UCL reconstruction with ulnar nerve transposition. With concomitant ulnar nerve symptoms, a simultaneous ulnar nerve transposition provides good results. Ligament repairs and allograft reconstructions have not shown good long-term results. Moving on to the next question, which of the following clinical tests is used to diagnose medial instability of the elbow? And the choices are 1. Posterolateral rotatory drawer test, 2. Lateral pivot shift test, 3. Moving valgus stress test, 4. The chair test, which is an apprehension or dislocation on terminal extension of the supinated forearm when rising from a seated position, and 5. The push-up sign. So the moving valgus stress test is used in the diagnosis of medial collateral ligament instability of the elbow, making three the correct answer to this question. The other tests that are listed apply a varus force to the elbow and are used to diagnose lateral ulnar collateral insufficiency. Moving on to the next question, a 28-year-old professional baseball pitcher sustains a complete rupture of his ulnar collateral ligament. He is neurovascularly intact on exam. Which of the following surgical reconstruction techniques has been shown to result in the lowest complication rate and best patient outcome? And the choices are 1. Splitting of flexor pronator mass, figure of 8 graft fixation, 2. Splitting of flexor pronator mass and a docking graft fixation, 3. Splitting of flexor pronator mass, docking graft fixation and ulnar nerve transposition, 4. Detachment of flexor pronator mass, figure of 8 graft fixation and ulnar nerve transposition, and 5. Detachment of flexor pronator mass, docking graft fixation, and ulnar nerve transposition. So ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction using a flexor pronator muscle splitting approach and a docking graft fixation technique are associated with the lowest complication rate and best patient outcomes. Vitali et al. performed a systematic review of retrospective cohort studies evaluating UCL reconstruction techniques in overhead athletes. They demonstrated that the flexor pronator muscle splitting approach was associated with better outcomes than detachment of the flexor pronator mass, had a lower rate of postoperative ulnar neuropathy, and a lower overall complication rate. They also found fixation of the graft utilizing the docking technique was associated with better outcomes than the figure of eight technique. Abandoning the obligatory ulnar nerve transposition was associated with improved patient outcomes, that is 89% versus 75%, and a lower rate of postoperative ulnar neuropathy, that is 4% versus 9%. Reddig et al. performed a case series reviewing 31 overhead throwing athletes with ulnar collateral ligament injuries managed non-operatively with three months of rest followed by rehab exercises. 
They concluded that 42% of athletes were able to return to their previous level of competition at an average of six months from diagnosis, which was earlier than reconstruction. The authors were unable to identify any patient-specific factors like duration of symptoms, age, acuity of onset that would predict the success of non-operative treatment. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old collegiate pitcher sustains a medial collateral ligament rupture of his throwing elbow requiring surgical reconstruction. Anatomic restoration of the MCL is desired to maximize function. Which of the following best describes the kinematics of the native MCL? And the choices are 1. Anterior bundle becomes tight in flexion and lacks in extension. 2. The posterior bundle demonstrates the greatest change in tension from flexion to extension. 3. Posterior bundle becomes lax in flexion and tight in extension. 4. Posterior bundle is isometric. And 5. The posterior bundle is isometric, but the anterior is not. So the medial ulnar collateral ligament is an important static stabilizer of the medial elbow that can become attenuated and rupture in throwing athletes leading to pain, valgus instability, and loss of throwing velocity. Mori et al. dissected 10 cadaver elbows to pinpoint the origin and insertion of both the medial and lateral stabilizing ligaments of the elbow. Most pertinent to this question is that the anterior bundle of the MCL was found to be isometric throughout the flexion-extension arc of motion. The posterior bundle of the MCL became elongated with elbow flexion. It demonstrated the greatest change in length from extension to flexion of all the elbow ligaments. So the correct answer to this question is 2. The posterior bundle demonstrates the greatest change in tension from flexion to extension. Morimoto et al. performed an in vivo kinematic study to determine the isometric point of the lateral elbow ligaments. The radial collateral ligament was determined to be isometric through flexion and extension. The lateral ulnar collateral ligament was found to be lax in extension and tight in flexion. In a separate study, Morimoto et al. reviewed nine patients who underwent excision of heterotopic ossification that included resection of the posterior oblique ligament of the medial collateral ligament. Range of motion was improved, and no patient demonstrated instability at four years of follow-up. And the final question for this topic, all of the following protect the elbow from valgus loads during the throwing cycle except, and the choices are 1, flexor pronator muscle contraction, 2, reduced fastball velocity, 3, increased glenohumeral internal rotation torque, 4, forearm pronation, and 5, scapular protraction slash retraction. So during a thrower's kinetic chain, increased shoulder internal rotation torque contributes to increased valgus elbow loads. Marshall et al. described the importance of proximal to distal control of the upper extremity in producing angular and racket velocity and theorized that longitudinal rotation should be considered during injury prevention programs. Davis et al. demonstrated that correct pitching mechanics offered the most efficient throwing velocity for a given shoulder internal rotation torque and elbow valgus load. Thus, scapular dynamic control, correct pitching mechanics, pronation of the forearm with dynamic flexor pronator muscle contraction protects the elbow from valgus loads. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Increased glenohumeral internal rotation torque is an incorrect statement when we're talking about protecting the elbow from valgus loads during the throwing cycle. Moving on to the next topic of tibial plafond fractures, the first question reads, A 24-year-old male presents with ankle pain after being involved in a motor vehicle accident. Imaging shows an intraarticular tibial plafond fracture. Which of the following has been shown to contribute to the development of post-traumatic arthritis in this injury? And the choices are 1. Initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via apoptosis at the fracture margins. 2. 
initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via apoptosis remote from the fracture margins. 3. Initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via necrosis remote from the fracture margins. 4. Initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via necrosis at the fracture margins. And 5. Delayed superficial zone cartilage cell death via necrosis at the fracture margins. So, initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via necrosis at the fracture margins has been shown to contribute to post-traumatic arthritis. Post-traumatic osteoarthritis typically occurs after an intraarticular fracture. Impacted chondrocytes die by either necrosis or apoptosis, which have both been implicated in post-traumatic osteoarthritis. Initial cell death in the superficial cartilage zones at the fracture margins occur by necrosis. Apoptosis occurs in a delayed fashion and is mitigated by several bioactive agents. Apoptosis also affects the superficial cartilage zones near the fracture margins. Deep cartilaginous zones and areas away from the fracture margins do not seem to be involved in these processes. McKinley et al. performed a review of the basic science of intraarticular fractures and post-traumatic osteoarthritis. They report that initial damage to the cartilage in combination with the ensuing pathomechanical and pathobiologic response of the cartilage after a fracture contribute to post-traumatic arthritis. Chronic abnormal joint loading is also thought to contribute to this process as well, and they conclude that the relative contribution of each is unknown. Tochigi et al. performed a study to determine the distribution and progression of chondrocyte damage after intraarticular ankle fractures. They harvested seven normal human ankles and subjected them to impaction. They found that immediate superficial zone chondrocyte death was greater in fracture edge regions than on fracture regions. Subsequent cell death over the next 48 hours was significantly higher in fracture edge regions as well. They conclude that cartilage damage in intraarticular fractures was characterized by chondrocyte death at fracture margins. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Initial superficial zone cartilage cell death via necrosis at the fracture margins. Next question. A 45-year-old male sustains a comminuted, impacted, shortened pilon fracture after falling off a ladder. Which of the following is the appropriate sequence in management? And the choices are 1. Closed reduction, splint application, CT scan, delayed open reduction, and internal fixation. 2. Closed reduction, cast application, and close observation. 3. Splint application, CT scan, application of an external fixator, delayed open reduction and internal fixation. 4. Splint application, application of an external fixator, CT scan, and a delayed open reduction and internal fixation and five, splint application, acute open reduction, and internal fixation. So this patient sustained a pilon fracture with severe comminution and impaction at the articular surface. And the correct sequence of management includes one, immediate splinting, two, application of an external fixator, three, restoration of length alignment and rotation with temporizing external fixation, four, computed tomography or CT scan, followed by five, definitive fixation once soft tissues are amenable. Tornetta and Gorup analyzed the use of preoperative CT scans in comparison to radiographs in preparation for fixing pilon fractures. The authors noted increased recognition of intraarticular fragments, comminution, and noted a high percentage of operative planning changes following CT analysis. 
Furthermore, the authors recommended CT scans after external fixation for even better fragment characterization. Marsh et al. in their instructional course lecture provided tips and tricks in successful management of pilon fractures. One of the highlighted points includes staged delayed treatment of pilon fractures via spanning external fixator, as well as highlighting the importance of obtaining the CT after restoring length and alignment. So the correct answer to this question is four, splint application, application of an external fixator, CT scan, and delayed ORIF. Next question. In a pilon fracture, the chaput fragment typically maintains soft tissue attachment via which of the following structures? And the choices are one, interosseous ligament, two, anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, three, posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, four, deltoid ligament, and five, tibiotalar ligament. So this is a straight pathoanatomy question. The chaput fragment is the anterolateral fragment of the distal tibia, and this section of bone attaches to the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament and is often hinged off this structure due to the fracture. And just to review, a pilon fracture is often split into three main fragments at the joint level, and those are the chaput fragment, which is the anterolateral fragment, the Volkmann fragment, which is the posterolateral fragment, and a medial fragment. The Volkmann fragment is the attachment site of the posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, and the Wagstaff fragment is the fibular corollary to the chaput fragment and serves as the other attachment of the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament. So the correct answer to this question is two, the chaput fragment typically maintains soft tissue attachment via the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament. Next question. Which of the following statements is true regarding break travel time after surgical treatment of complex lower extremity trauma? And the choices are one, break travel time is significantly increased until six weeks after the patient begins weight bearing. Two, return of normal break travel time takes longer after long bone fractures compared to articular fractures. Three, normal break travel time correlates with improved short musculoskeletal functional assessment scores. Four, break travel time is significantly reduced until eight weeks after a patient begins weight bearing. And five, break travel time returns to normal when weight bearing begins. So the break travel time has been shown to be significantly increased until six weeks after initiation of weight bearing in both long bone and articular fractures of the right lower extremity. Egal et al. used a computerized driving simulator to compare break travel times in three groups of patients. One, a control group, two, a long bone lower extremity fracture group, and three, a lower extremity articular fracture group. And they concluded that break travel time was significantly increased until six weeks after initiation of weight bearing in both long bone and articular fractures of the right lower extremity and that short musculoskeletal functional assessment scores improved with respect to function and other indexes, but did not correlate with improvement in break travel time. An earlier study by Egal et al. looked at total break time as it related to distance traveled by the automobile before breaking at 6, 9, and 12 weeks after operative fixation of a right ankle fracture. When compared with controls, Breaking time was shown to return to normal by nine weeks postoperatively, and no significant association was found between the functional scores 
and this normalization. But anyway, the correct answer to this question is 1. Break travel time is significantly increased until 6 weeks after the patient begins weight-bearing. And the final question for this topic, a 43-year-old man sustained a closed intraarticular pilon fracture. It has now been one year since he underwent open reduction and internal fixation. Which of the following statements most accurately describes his perceived outcome? And the choices are 1. His clinical outcome will correlate closely with his initial reduction. 2. His outcome will correlate with his radiographic score on the ankle osteoarthritis score. 3. He will likely require a late ankle arthrodesis. 4. He will demonstrate marked limitations with regard to recreational activities. And 5. He will perceive improvements for a period of over 2 years. So Marsh and Associates retrospectively reviewed 56 tibial plafond fractures and found that the patients perceived improvement in their function and pain for an average of 2.4 years. They demonstrated some limitations in recreational activities, but not marked limitations. Patients were unlikely to need a late arthrodesis, and only 13% of patients required this. And the overall outcomes of the patients studied did not correlate well with assessments of reduction or arthritis scores. So the answer to this question is 5. He will perceive improvements for a period of over 2 years. That's all for this question review session about medial ulnar collateral ligament injury and tibial plafond fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.